straight out of Finland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Helsinki. Today, I have got Dr. Sam Liebens from the University of Haifa. We are chatting about his recent book, The Principles of Judaism. Sam and I discuss the motivations for writing a book on analytic Jewish theology. Then we get into the three principles of the Jewish faith. After that, Sam and I get into Jewish debates on the doctrines of creation out of nothing, eternal creation, and more. In future episodes, Sam and I will be discussing idealism, the atonement, and hypertime, so look forward to those. If you have questions or topics that you would like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here is Sam and I chatting about Judaism and creation. Enjoy. Uh, So, Sam, I want to talk about some different themes from your new book, The Principles of Judaism. So why don't we just start with the motivation behind the book? Like, so like what motivated you to write a book about the principles of Judaism? I I think there's been a bit of a dearth uh, of a type of Jewish philosophy for a long time. You yourself, uh, Ryan, work work in a lot of um, Christian analytic theology, and there's been a kind of a renaissance of a sort in Christian theology because of the sustained uh, dialogue that there's been between contemporary cutting-edge analytical philosophy and Christian thought. And that meeting between contemporary cutting-edge analytical philosophy and Jewish thought um, hasn't really happened in a sustained way. There have been a few articles here and there of analytic philosophers kind of bringing Jewish tradition into conversation with analytical philosophy. And I was a co-founder, along with Aaron Siegel and Danny Rabinovitz of the Association for Jewish Philosophy, that tried to mimic itself, you know, kind of model itself upon the, mm-hmm. uh, the Society for Christian Philosophy, that uh, philosophers that has done so much to kind of champion uh, and, 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 and was a catalyst uh, for that renaissance I've been describing in the the Christian analytic um, theology movement. And and indeed, we actually put out a book before this book uh, together, a a co-edited volume of of articles. But I think my book is probably the first book-length contribution to this field, which you could call like Jewish analytic theology. Mm-hmm. So so that was part of the uh, inspiration. But you asked, why did I want to write a book on the principles of Judaism? And I suppose I can give two answers, both of which I think are, are true. Okay, so one is that in medieval Jewish philosophy, and in my view, that was the the, the pinnacle of Jewish philosophy historically, mm. in terms of rigor and systematicity and intellectual vigor, was the, was the medieval period of Jewish philosophy. And in that period, there was actually a genre uh, of book. You could call it, you know, so if, if in Christianity you have things like a systematic theology, right? it's not quite systematics, it's what you might call axiomatics. There were like a, a group of Jewish philosophers who were really interested in trying to discover what are the key principles upon which 
this whole thing called Judaism's stands or falls. We don't really have catechisms in our uh, tradition, at least, you know, not particularly long ones or detailed mm-hmm. ones. But there was this tradition of saying, okay, let's just think, like, what are the things that are non-negotiable? What are the things that if I discovered they were false, I really couldn't continue on with any honesty in terms of my Jewish commitment? And, mm-hmm. and, and in a sense, the fewer you find the stronger your religion is because yeah. right because there's less that can falsify you or less that can prove yeah. you wrong so you know Maimonides had 13 famously but there were a group of thinkers that coalesced around three and my book tries to model itself on on that that notion that there are three principles uh, of Judaism but the second answer is perhaps a little more honest which is just mm. I, ha- I had a bunch of articles that I'd written on various issues and I was like and I was talking to my friend Tyron Goldschmidt who who, who was a co-author of two of these articles mm-hmm. and, and 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 I was like I, I bet I could organize these articles into a book and he was like yeah haven't you noticed that like lots of what you write is on one or other of these three principles why don't you just yeah. organize uh, and so i did and then it became it became that and i also liked calling it the principles of judaism because in my eyes like the real beginning of analytic philosophy this is controversial but for me sure. it was russell's the principles of mathematics right. i love i love that book you know my first book is on on russell and the metaphysics mm-hmm. of, of propositions so having a book called the principles of x in general was just you know for me that was really right cool. Yeah. yeah, so just following in the, like the trails of your, of your heroes. That's, so, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah but, but but also it's a direct translation of the name of a medieval work of Jewish philosophy by Rabbi Albo, Sefer Ikarim, the Book of Principles. So so it's a nice, you know. So that's mm-hmm. that's the story of the book. I like it. I like it. So let's get into some of those different principles here. So so you identify three different principles of Judaism that are kind of about like creation, Torah, and providence. So why don't you just tell everybody like what those three principles are? Like just like state them. Yeah. Sure, sure. So Ra- Rabbi Joseph Albo in the 1400s, he basically, and he wasn't really the first, he was following in the footsteps of another rabbi called Rabbi Duran, not to be uh, uh, confused with Duran Duran, the 1980s um, um, outfit. Um, but but um Rabbi Duran and Rabbi Albo kind of coalesced around three principles, and they were that God exists, that God reveals himself to the Jewish people through this thing that we call Torah. And then the third principle is something to do with God's providential governance over the world. Now, those three principles then get kind of fleshed out a little bit more, and I cheat a little bit in that I make the first principle not that God exists, but that God exists and created the universe, which actually technically in the medieval literature, those Rabbi Albo didn't seem to think that God being the creator was as essential, as axiomatic Hmm. as God existing, right? It seems as if, you know, I know we're going to talk about this a bit later, uh, uh, Ryan, but, you know, there are debates about, is it important that the creation is a thing that happened in time, that there was a first moment? Right. And certainly... Uh, I think Rabbi Abba would say it's as fundamental and as important as it can be to believe that God sustains the universe in being, but that there was a first moment in time uh, uh, in virtue of which you can call God the creator in a, in a slightly different sense. Rabbi Abba believed it, but he didn't make that kind of um, as axiomatic. It wasn't as deep a principle as mm. God the sustainer existing. And I, I cheat because I, I I write God's creating the universe into the axiom itself for for reasons I I justify in the book. Right, yeah. So I've got uh, God created the world is principle one. 
principle two is that God uh, reveals his will for the Jewish people through this thing called Torah. And the third is that uh, God uh, um, is involved providentially in governing the universe, which includes uh, reward and punishment, an afterlife, a promise of the Messiah, etc., etc. Okay, so I want to touch on something that you you alluded to a minute ago, and then something you really get into in the book, which is that there are like multiple ways to flesh out these different principles that you've identified. And so you claim that like an Orthodox Jew doesn't necessarily have to develop the principles into like more thicker claims in the way that you do in the book. Yeah. So why don't you just tell me a bit more about this idea? Yeah, sure. So you know, Orthodox Judaism is an interesting sociological phenomenon uh, in that you know, <laughs> Ryan, you and I. Um, were postdocs together in mm-hmm. in Notre Dame, right? And we had those yeah, week yeah. we had those weekly seminars in philosophy of religion that we would go colloquia that we would go yeah. to, and that was really my first sustained um, exposure to high level Christian uh, philosophy. You know, my sure, background yeah. was in was in analytic metaphysics not religion at all and then I was in rabbinical school where I did all this Jewish stuff and I remember very often trying to contribute to the colloquium right by by making a suggestion right you were working Mm -hmm. on timelessness and Ross Inman was working on omnipresence and whatever and I'd, I'd throw some suggestion out and then you would invariably say you or Ross or someone, oh yeah, but the Council of Trent or yeah. something says that's heresy, and I'd, I had no idea about all these different councils, right? You know, so I I used to preface some of my my remarks by saying, you know, um, if it wasn't ruled out by the Council of Basingstoke, then yeah. um, then maybe this will help, <laughs> you know. Um, but, but what I was what I was kind of pointing to was that in, in Christianity. There were these councils, it's a consular religion in in part, and often there were fissures, is that the word, Uh, Mm -hmm. between different churches based upon quite subtle... Oh, uh, very um, subtle. Exactly, uh, doctrinal differences. And Judaism, on the whole, seems to be kind of institutionally more tolerant of theological and metaphysical differences of opinion. So within what you might call one communion or one church, right? I'm using deliberately using Christian language to help model this, right? You could call Orthodox Judaism one communion, but it has within it a, a massive diversity of beliefs about the nature of God, about the nature of revelation, about eschatological kind of expectations, about the meaning and significance of ritual, and there's an interesting kind of sociological question. So what, what is it that makes this one communion? And th- there are denominational differences in Judaism. There are non-Orthodox, what you might call churches or communions. Uh, yeah. There's Reform Judaism, Reconstructionist Judaism, Conservative Judaism. In America, those denominational differences are very pronounced. In many countries around the world, Orthodox Judaism is kind of the only substantial game in town whereas whereas in america these other de- these non-orthodox denominations are very prominent and and, mm. and uh, um, influential and, and, and important the things which seem to matter most in terms of are you in or you or are you out of this thing called orthodoxy i think are, are two two things number mm. one a certain degree of halachic conformity. So Jewish law, halacha, Jewish law, uh, regulates the activities of an observant Jew from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed each day. You know, it's a very 
involved and detailed uh, ritual legal system called halakha. And there, orthodoxy is much less tolerant of diversity, right? You know, <laughs> attach whatever meanings you like uh, to these activities. And, you know, and you could have a very different theology, but if you don't say the prayers at the right time and in the right way, or if you eat the wrong sort of food, or if you, okay, then, you, you know, we're going to have questions <laughs> about whether you can really call yourself orthodox. And the second, the second issue, I think, is to do with revelation. Uh, to what extent do you think this thing called halakha, Jewish law, right? To what extent do you think it's divine? And, and if you look at my book, I say, well, look, Judaism is going to stand or fall upon whether God is, God exists and created the world. That's going to be really important. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be really important to have some sort of view about eschatology because I think, because I mean, one of the reasons that's going to be important is, is why is Judaism not Christianity? Right? Why right. didn't why didn't we accept Jesus? So we're going to have something. We're going to have to say something about what it is that we do expect from our eschatology. But there's a lot that could be said there. However, yeah. the second principle, which is part two of my book, I, I actually it's the one that I'm I think is in a sense most in some sense of the word important. It's the most important part of the book mm. because at the end of the book, where I admit that okay, you know. I, I maybe have added too much flesh to the bare bones of principle one and principle three. You know, what I've done in the book is I've told you what I think it means for God to be the creator of the universe and what I think it means for there to be an eschatological promise. But like, you know, I basically what I say in the book is that the three principles as I understand them are sufficient for Judaism. Mm -hmm. I would like them to be necessary. But I've got to be honest. I don't think I don't think they are. I think that you could probably flesh out principle one and principle three, which is about God's creating the world and the eschatology stuff. You could probably flesh them out differently and still be recognisably orthodox, be recognised as orthodox. Mm -hmm. be, um, but the second principle, that kind of God is is heavily involved in the unfolding of the revelation through rabbinic literature and halacha. Mm -hmm. I think there's much less leeway for disagreement because as soon as you disagree yeah. substantively on that, you're probably not going to be orthodox. You'll be conservative or you'll be reform or you'll be, you know, famously uh, Mordechai Kaplan, um, who went from being orthodox. He's a great American the theologian and thinker, one of the one of the greatest kind of Jewish American thinkers uh, of the last century. But he went from being orthodox to being conservative to being reconstructionist throughout his life and kind of founded the reconstructionist movement. But his ultimate view, his final view was halakha, Jewish law, has a voice but not a veto. So clearly, um, he had a very different view of the mechanics of revelation mm -hmm. to orthodoxy. Um, so so the, only, the only principle in my book that I don't think you could flesh out differently whilst still retaining your kind of orthodox credentials is that second principle. Yeah, no, no, I think that's really helpful. It's really interesting. Uh, also, I had one thought about the the Council of Basingstoke comment. Yes, I, yes. I remember that day because we were talking about <laughs> my chapter on the Incarnation. Right. And I originally had a footnote in there that said, well, but as Sam points out, you know, this might be inconsistent with the Council of Basingstoke. <laughs> That would have been great. <laughs> but I eventually cut it because I was like, I've already snuck too many jokes and too many like, you know, like niche references into right. this book. So like, you can't, I can't get away with uh, them more. So I got rid of it. Uh, but yeah, so all I'd say, I do remember a lot of those conversations and they really, I thought they were great. And, uh, and so then finally reading your book and seeing like the fruit of all of that stuff come together yeah. was, was really cool. 
Yeah. Uh, so let's get into the the first principle of creation. That's what I want to talk about on today's episode. Sure. So, like, one of the things I, I mean, I told you this like before we were talking about like like in your book, like you cover like an impressive amount of ground on the doctrine yeah. of creation. Like, I was yeah. I was reading your book at the same time as I was reading another book devoted just to the doctrine of creation. Mm. And what you did in like 50 pages was wow. just like a lot compared to what they did in like 100 yeah. pages where they hadn't actually said anything yet. But, <laughs> you know, I won't name and shame who that was. But um, so, yeah. So today, though, I want to I want to kind of help people just get like a glimpse of what you're up to in the book here. Sure. And so one of the things that you do is you identify like three different schools of thought on yeah. the doctrine of creation. And so you call these like uh, creatio continua, creatio originalis. Well, my, my Latin pronunciation is terrible, yeah, so please excuse that. But so the uh, creatio originalis ex nihilo and then creatio originalis ex material. Yeah. So can you just define each of these for everybody? Sure, sure. So the, these are the three views that you find most commonly amongst medieval J Jewish theologians, but also Christian mm -hmm. and, and, and Muslim theologians. One of the kind of uh, most inspiring things about um, that period is that Christians, Muslims, and Jews are really working hand in hand at the coalface of kind of uh, um, philosophical theology, citing one another, reading one another, influenced by one another. Kind of cool because I, I get to teach in, in in the University of Haifa, uh, is is Israel's most diverse university. So you know about about twenty percent of Israeli citizens are. Um, are Palestinian uh, mm. in, in origin, so so uh, Muslim and Christian, but about forty percent of the University of Haifa student body is Palestinian. So so it's a, a really diverse student body. Mm. So I, I get to be teaching kind of medieval philosophical theology to a group of people who who live in a conflict zone and li live amongst a lot of uh, division, uh, social and religious division. And yet I'm teaching this stuff to Muslims, Jews and Christians and Druze as well. There's a, a, a small a kind of offshoot of Islam that's kind of hmm. organizes as a separate religion in, in, in this region, the Druze religion, fascinating religion, by the way, if you want to look hmm. into it. Um, and, and teaching this medieval stuff is so cool because like, this was a period of real dialogue, meaningful dialogue. Anyway, yeah. you know that's a tangent, but it's cool. But I like, I like it. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, but to your question, so so you got these three schools of thought that that, that are kind of Abrahamic um, med medieval schools of thought. So the first is is creatio continua, which means that yes, God created the world, uh, but. That doesn't mean there was a point at t in time that you could isolate and call the moment of creation, the first moment, right? So the book of Genesis opens with, in the beginning, God created uh, the heavens and the earth. At least that's one way of translation, translating that first verse. That first verse actually in the Hebrew is, is grammatically very complicated. And, you know, I get into that a little bit in the book, but... Um, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, makes it look like there was a first moment, the moment at which God said something like, let there be light. That's the first moment. Um, Creator Continua denies that. Creator Continua says, yes, God is the creator of the world, but there's no first moment. If, if, if you got into the DeLorean in, in, uh, in, in uh, Back to the Future mm -hmm. and, you know, go back, there's no point at which you'd stop. You can just keep going back. The past stretches back infinitely. What makes God the creator is that at each one of those moments, everything that exists owes its being to God. So God is continually creating. Now, I think the other schools of thought agree 
that God is continually creating. It's just they don't call that creation so much as sustenance. Mm -hmm. God is continually sustaining the universe in being. Um, but what's distinctive about the school called continu uh, Creatio Continua is they think that um, that's all it means for God to be the creator, that he was always sustaining um, mm -hmm. back, back into the past infinitely far. And clearly, that's not what you would imagine the Bible is saying in the book of Genesis, unless, as I said, you read the first verse slightly differently. You could read the first verse to say, in the beginnings of God's creation. Um, mm -hmm. so, so something like, there's no necessarily first point, but it's something means like early on, um, mm -hmm. you know, as God was making things, um, there was already chaos and void you know the tohu vavohu this this right. chaos and void and all that god did back then was you know maybe changed up the shape of it but there was always something and god was always sustaining it but nonetheless it, it's kind of a little bit counter countercultural to the abrahamic faith that tend to think of god as as creating at the first moment I ibn sinna in the in the islamic tradition is i think the philosopher most kind of forcefully and influentially advocating for creatio continua. But there mm -hmm. are people in the Jewish tradition too. Um, it, when they do it, they tend to get in trouble for doing it. So right. um, uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Moshe Narboni, he was a tremendous rabbi and a commentator in Maimonides. And, and, and in his lifetime, very well respected, but very soon after his death, he kind of is reduced to obscurity in part because he believed in oh. Creatio Continua, you know, okay. uh, um, yeah. Yitzhak Abelag as well. Uh, there are other uh, 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 other figures like that. Crescus, on Chastai Crescus, who I think is a fabulous medieval Jewish philosopher, recently reintroduced to the world through Rosalind Weiss's brilliant translation into English of his magnum opus, uh, The Light of the Lord, published by OUP. So there's a plug. Um, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a fa it's just a fabulous book. And, and, and now I say newly accessible because of this translation into English. Anyway, on some readings of Crescus, he was committed to Creatio Continua. But if he was, he was kind of a little bit uh, guarded about that commitment mm. um there are multiple ways of reading him uh, and indeed some people read maimonides as as kind of uh talking through two sides of his face you know on one side saying the official the official view is creatio ex nihilo but really you know uh, we <laughs> yeah. all know creatio continua is true there are some readings of maimonides that that uh, and he was definitely influenced by um some of these islamic thinkers who who, who adopted it so that's school one okay mm -hmm. then you've got two schools that you could call creatio originalis creatio originalis meaning there was a first moment okay and what divides them is whether the creation was ex nihilo or not right so creatio originalis ex nihilo says there was a first moment and moreover when god created the universe it kind of popped into being from nothing uh, to use the technical Aristotelian language, there was no material cause of the universe, right? A material cause in Aristotelian kind of physics is the stuff that you make something from. So the wood that makes the table, the wood and the nails that make up the table, they're the material cause of the table. The, the view called Creatio Ex Nihilo says, you know what, this universe has no material cause. There were, there were no ingredients that God used to make the universe. He made it out of nothing, so to speak. That's 
one view that stands against Creatio Continua. And the other the view that stands against Creatio Continua says, look, God created the universe in the beginning. Creatio Continua is wrong. There was a first moment. But there exists this like hylic matter that um, is co-eternal with God. Mm-hmm. Don't think that that somehow challenges God's omnipotence or his uh, or his sovereignty. If you think it does, you're wrong. We just need to think about you know what sovereignty means or what omnipotence sure. means to square that. But there's this matter, this kind of chaotic, unformed matter that coexists with God. And what God did at the beginning uh, was to give that matter form. Now you know I'm 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 not really an expert in in medieval jewish philosophy it's not my field uh, i i love it i study it i think about it a lot but it's not like it's not where my training is it's not right. i don't feel like i'm an expert in that you know in in a way that i might in some other areas but uh, um so i I'm, i say that to qualify what i'm about to say as far as i know um gersonides is the only real uh, medieval figure in the jewish tradition who who plums for uh, creatio ex materia, right? Creation mm. from this hylic matter. But it's clear there were some rabbis in ancient times, right? So um, soon after the destruction of the temple in the, f- in the first couple of centuries, because um, there are some midrashim. Um, midrash is this kind of um, uh, genre of um, homiletical, hermeneutical texts, commentaries on, on scripture from from the rabbis in the first few centuries and you you can see pretty clearly that there are some guys back there who mm-hmm. who, who believe in this doctrine too they were you know i don't I, I don't i don't think it was ever the consensus among the rabbis but it has it does have some kind of right yeah so those okay. are the three views uh yeah I, i'm talking a lot here ryan that's okay that's okay, <laughs> okay. Okay, so we've got these three different options, like when it comes to creation, mm-hmm. and so you point out, like that, uh, like a majority of Jew- Jewish thinkers, like they've over the years have affirmed creation ex nihilo, and so yeah. we're going to come to that in a minute. Um, but before that, like, tell me a bit about like the different considerations that one like would right. need to satisfy when they're trying to develop a Jewish account of creation. Yeah, good. So, like, I, I suppose it's it's similar to 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 you when you're when you're working on on. Um, on Christian analytic theology, you you have certain doctrinal commitments that you yeah. recognize that, you know, you have to kind of temper your philosophical speculations um, to these kind of doctrinal commitments that, you know, if, 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 if I say Q rather than P, then there's no way of, of saying that I'm being faithful to the tradition anymore, right? right. Or, or the tradition that for one reason or another matters to you. You know, I know there are some councils you care less about than other councils, right? right? <laughs> yeah. um, and then you have to you have to tell a story about why it is you mm-hmm. care about them and not and not those. But likewise, in the Jewish tradition, you know, I'm an Orthodox Jew. You know, it, it's it's interesting these three these three principles. You can't really arrive at any one of them without thinking about the others, mm-hmm. right? So so the second principle about about God's role in Revelation, kind of constrains me a little bit when thinking about creation what how so well i think that god and and again I, i'm used to now translating jewish philosophy a little bit into kind of christian mm-hmm. terms yeah i think a christian would describe what i mean in in this way the holy spirit moves okay through rabbinic literature yeah right? yeah, yeah. Okay? so <laughs> but the thing is rabbinic literature doesn't have a consensus 
on fine-grained metaphysical issues because we didn't publish these book lengths book length catechisms we didn't have councils proclaiming on fine-grained issues of philosophical theology or metaphysics however um it's important to me to kind of because i think god so to speak is speaking through Maimonides and through Crescus and through Gasonides and through the mystics and through the rabbinic texts and through the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I know that they all disagreed with one another. Yeah. Right? I feel I have a responsibility. Okay, well, God's speaking through all of them, but he, he's not making it easy for me because they're disagreeing <laughs> with one another, right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, so I feel like what the Jewish philosopher has to try and do is find some sort of best fit where I give as much weight as I possibly can to as many of these thinkers as I possibly can, right? Yeah. Um, um, whilst, you know, whilst also trying to find something which is philosophically sustainable and that, that is empirically adequate, by which I mean, you know, doesn't conflict with what we know from the sciences. So I speak in the book about three, three sorts of considerations that I bring to bear on a theory of creation, right? One is that it should it should be philosophically kind of respectable, right? Mm -hmm. And there are yeah. certain kind of uh, um, properties that are important to a philosopher. Theory should be explanatory. It should be as simple as possible. It shouldn't be, it should be coherent. It should be, you know, these kind yeah. of theoretical virtues that a philosopher wants to see in her, uh, in her philosophical theories. Well, I, I want to see them in my theory of creation. I'm a philosopher. Uh, I talk about cosmological considerations. Um, there's a lot that we know now that we didn't know, you know, that Maimonides didn't know that, that the human authors of, of, of the Bible, you know, I'm, I'm very orthodox, right? So I'm willing to, I'm willing to think that the Pentateuch is, is a divine dictation to Moses. I'm open to that view, right? Um, turns out, I think that's less important to orthodoxy than some orthodox people do, but, but to me, it's more plausible than a lot of people have thought it is, right? That mm -hmm. God, God dictated these words to Moses. But what they would have meant to Moses and what they would mean to me, given all the stuff we know that Moses didn't know, right? And what, yeah. and what the prophecies meant to the prophets versus what they're going to mean to us, given all this stuff that we know. We have to bring our philosophical and, uh, and our theological work into dialogue with what we know from the sciences, or at least mm -hmm. what we feel confident of you know um what what cosmology teaches us um it does with less certainty than the deductive sciences of logic and mathematics and you know but still there are some things that we can be pretty sure of um right. and i speak about that in the book i think it's really implausible i think young earth creationism for example is really implausible it gets this balance wrong between these these considerations, these three sorts of considerations that we're looking for. However, the third set of considerations after philosophical and kind of scientific cosmological it is not to do violence to the Jewish tradition, which right. because I think God because I, I think God speaks through it. Uh, luckily, I think there are ways of squaring uh, an old universe with with the weight of the tradition. I actually think it's very anachronistic to relate to the Bible as a natural history book mm -hmm. right uh, uh that's not how the original audiences could have related to it because right. that genre hadn't you know hadn't come Didn't into exist. being yeah. exactly exactly so so um i i do think it's possible to kind of find a sweet spot of best fit between all of these different considerations 
Right. So some kind of consistency with Jewish scripture and tradition, some right. kind of philosophical adequacy, like yes. explanatory power, yes. simplicity, elegance, all those things we like, yes. coherence. Yes. Uh, and then some kind of fit with, you know, scientific theories that we take to be that's right. like at least realist. So that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, pretty yeah. yeah, scientific theories we take to be pretty well confirmed. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because not you're not like being like, no, there's one particular interpretation of this <laughs> super niche area of quantum <laughs> yeah. mechanics. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. super important. You know, it's so not that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Okay. So one of the things you do in the book is you go through a bunch of different arguments for and against creation ex nihilo. Uh, and yeah. so I want you to walk me through like just one argument in favor of creation sure. ex nihilo. Sure. So actually, um, you know, I, I take it that in the medieval debate around creation, there there were more arguments in favor of creatio continua than there were in favor of the other views. And what happens is you kind of arrive at creatio ex nihilo through a process of elimination. Mm -hmm. What you do is you realize, oh, all of these arguments that some of them are not bad arguments for right. creatio continua. Once you realize that none of them ultimately stand up, you say, well, I don't really have any compelling reason to believe that the past is infinitely long. Once you've once you've undermined all of these these arguments, they're not bad arguments, but once you've undermined them, I don't have any reason to believe the universe was in. You know, the past is infinitely long, and scripture on a first pass makes it look like the hist you know history isn't infinitely long. This kind right. of is, is my the Maimonidean strategy. So he doesn't have an argument in favor of creatio uh, ex nihilo. He's like, well. I don't have an argument in favor of creatio continua and the Bible kind of makes it look like there was a beginning. So let's plumb for a beginning. And the notion of formless matter, matter without form mm -hmm. is just completely a philosophical disaster, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is what, you know, Gersonides tries to defend. So by a process of elimination, uh, we, we end up with creatio originalis ex nihilo, right? Yeah. And, and in, you know, and in the book, I do go through what I take to be decent arguments for the infinite length of the past, that the past is infinitely long. However, none of them ultimately stand up in, in the book. Then uh, I, I review cosmological kind of findings. You know, William Lane Craig, for example, is very excited by uh, contemporary cosmology and thinks that the Big Bang Theory basically uh, proves that the past has a beginning. And I just think that's wrong. I think you know, an honest reading of the of the cosmological theories out there today don't entail that there was a first moment, not even the Big Bang Theory. The Big Bang Theory suggests there's a limit, mm -hmm. right? So so I, 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 using Brian Pitts's uh, um, uh, analogy, I, I compare this to the number series, right? Uh, you've got a limit, the, 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 the number zero, there's no number smaller than it. But that yeah. doesn't mean there is a first positive number. Right. right. Um, the number one is the first whole integer, right? Yeah. But but the first positive number, like zero point zero one. Well, no, because there's zero point zero zero one, and there's also zero point zero 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 one, right? So there's no first number, and 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 I think that that Big Bang cosmology forces us to think of time like that. There is no first moment. There's a singularity which functions more like the number zero. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a first moment. And what's worse for William Lane Craig, I think, is that we we don't know ultimately how quantum physics is going to be reconciled with with um, yeah. general relativity right and we don't know and on all the most promising avenues of research there was no singularity 
string theory, loop theory, all these different ways of trying to reconcile quantum theory with with Einstein. Mm-hmm. They end they end up what what Pritz, Pitts calls them singularity intolerant. They end up mm-hmm. with no singularities, and they actually allow you to ask, well, what happened before the Big Bang? Right. On, on orthodox Big Bang theory, that question was nonsensical. Exactly. There is no before, right? But it's it's now it's now a meaningful question. So I don't think cosmology kind of helps one way or the other, okay, uh, to prove that there was a first moment or or indeed that there wasn't. So I talk about that in the book. Mm-hmm. I talk about why Gersonides felt compelled to think there must have been some ingredients from which God created the world. I actually think his argument is better than people have hitherto realized because I think he was slowly becoming aware that the creation of a material universe from nothing is problematic. The real answer to that isn't to posit this thing called formless matter, mm-hmm. which is a disaster. Yeah. Because as soon as you have matter without form, that's basically having a thing with no properties. Yeah. But what does that even mean? Not having a property seems to me to be a property, right? It sounds, I mean, like it. It sounds very property, right? Yeah. <laughs> that sounds probably like it. It's just like self, <laughs> self-referentially incoherent, the whole thing. Yeah. My, my solution to the problems that I think he was kind of incoherently aware of is, is to go idealist and, and is mm. to say, well, actually, there's a sense in which the universe isn't material. Um, there is a problem creating matter from nothing, and there's a sense in which the universe isn't material. But that's that's another chapter of the book. You asked me, this is a very long prologue to the, the question you asked me. You asked me, well, so what's the argument? And uh, unlike Maimonides, I do have an argument uh, for creatio ex nihilo, and it's an argument that has its roots in John Philoponus. Um, mm-hmm. Is that how you pronounce it? Um, That's how I've usually heard it pronounced, yeah. which is unfortunate because I, I've published on him uh, okay, as well. Okay, and yeah, I still okay. don't know how to pronounce his name. So, it yeah. has its roots in him. Uh, it was developed by Al-Kindi uh, in the Muslim tradition. Um, I, I actually think Sajigaon formulates it in a slightly different way that, that actually renders it slightly more elegant in various ways we, you know uh but but anyway um I, I hope that's not my parochial jewish centrism centric trans, centricity saying oh finally the jew said it best i hope it, yeah. I hope it doesn't come out that way um there are plenty of things which christians and muslims have said best but on this particular issue i really think sajigan frames it very elegantly in ways that kind of forestall certain problems that could otherwise emerge. Anyway, the the problem is basically this, and people who've read Kant will be familiar with it, the the argument. It's basically that if if the past was infinitely long, then the present couldn't have reached us because the present would have had to have completed an infinitely long journey. Mm -hmm. Um, I find that argument remarkably compelling. Mm-hmm. And I know that some people won't. They will either find it not compelling because they think that infinite series can be completed. And I have a discussion of that book and I relegated it in the, in the book of that point. I relegate it all to footnotes towards the end of the book. I've had this discussion with Hud Hudson, with Aaron Siegel, with various people. They all seem to think I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure I'm right. Um, an infinite series cannot be, be completed, especially not like temporarily, right? In this right. kind of yeah, sequ- not through some sort of succession and not addition. through succession yeah. in some sort of sequential manner. You know, mm-hmm. Hud Hudson says, "Well, that's that's ridiculous." You know, over the last fifteen minutes, 
you you completed a sequence, right? Because uh, at the beginning of the 15 minutes, you were a certain age, and at every single instant, and there were an infinite number of instants between then and now, over the course of 15 minutes, you swapped age properties, right? And you've completed uh -huh, that yeah. sequence. I, I think that's sophistry. For, I'm not. I'm not even. Yeah. Sure, I'm not even sure there's such a thing as property instantiation in an instant. I don't know what they're talking about. I, don't, I think that their argument relies on many premises that I'm not sure are true. But there's one premise I'm pretty sure is true, which is you can't complete sequentially an infinite sequence. Exactly. Yeah. So I just want to be like this sort of continuous theory, like a theory of time. I'd be like, that's false. Like that's nuts. Like there's no way that I have like over this last minute completed, completed an infinite it. amount of time. I just think that's yeah. Nuts. I just want to be like discrete time. That's that's fine. Yeah. I it's just, not as um, elegant, but yeah. I might not. It isn't as elegant, and I might not have uh, a knockdown argument, which which I'd like to have. What you ask me to do is there an argument for. Um, Creator X and Helio, I think it, there are certain things you just have to accept, but to me, they're yeah. just like obviously true. Yeah. Right? You can't complete an infinite sequence. I think another way you can block this argument is if you have some sort of uh, B theory of time, right? And, and if you have a B theory of time, then the, the past, present, and future, those are not fundamental distinctions. Right. There are just moments in time, earlier and later. We just happen to call the, the one we live in now. So to think of an infinite past as requiring this thing called the present to complete an infinitely long journey is the wrong way to conceive of an infinite past if you're a B-theorist, right? I, I also think it's the wrong way to conceive of the past if you're a presentist. Because if you're a presentist, the infinitely long past doesn't, doesn't get cashed out in terms of um, the existence of a, an infinitely a large number of past moments. So there may be some wiggle room for the presentist to escape this argument. I'm not even sure if they can escape the argument, uh, presentist, but there may be some wiggle room. At the end of the book, and I think we'll be talking about this in another episode, Ryan, mm -hmm. um, I, I try to argue that theists have good reason to reject the B theory, and they have good reason to reject presentism, which I know you'll mm -hmm. want to resist. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and given that... Um, all of the premises of Sajigaton's argument are in place, and you see that the you know we're not presentists and we're not B theorists, and of course it's obvious that an infinite sequence can't be completed. So yes, uh, the world had a beginning, history had to have had a beginning, um, and that gives you that gives you creatio originalis, mm -hmm. and then you just have to pour scorn upon the notion of <laughs> of matter without properties yeah. and you and you get creatio originalis ex nihilo nice nice so we'll get into <laughs> some of the the philosophy of time stuff yeah like i said in, in another episode because uh, yeah I, you, you know i want to get into that sure and there you have it another episode of the reluctant theologian podcast stay tuned for episodes on idealism hyper time and so much more